And once I just learned how to get that single note and stop bending notes, then that was that was it. You yeah, know, that was really all I needed was that key to unlock that door. Hello and welcome to Where the Living Room Used to Be, a podcast about Rhode Island's music scene. Hey everyone, it's James. For this episode, I headed over to Pawtucket to talk with Paul Doobie. He's a talented multi-instrumentalist known for his work as an accordion sideman, bluegrass slow jam instructor, and he also happens to be my father-in-law. We run through what he's looking to achieve with his classes, how he got to be in a Celtic band that's played consistently for nearly 20 years, and his thoughts on intentional improvisation. I appreciate you giving this episode a listen. Uh, Please make sure to follow along on Facebook and Instagram as well at Living Room UTB for some show flyers and photos from Paul's time in music. I would say that all the music in our family branched from the music that my father had and, and passed down, directly okay. or indirectly. Yeah. Um, like what kind of stuff? He was a musician. He, he played accordion. In his day, it, accordion was, was a cooler thing. Um, Don't and, tell Alec Redburn that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was cool again, but you know there was a period of time, um, and and people like my father would probably uh, credit or blame Lawrence Welk with that. Given oh, really? That that and the Beatles. You know, Lawrence Welk being the symbol of how square the accordion is. Yeah. And the Beatles on rock and roll, the resurgence. You know, making it pretty clear that accordion was not where the future was. Guitars mm-hmm. were where the cool music was. Yeah. So. Um, but in his day, I mean, he picked it up by choice, practiced by choice. I, you know, I remember him telling me the story that he was taking uh, lessons from uh, Tony and Briglio. He's the guy that owned the studio that where I took lessons and that my father taught. Yeah. Um, and where the, was that? Later on in Fall River, in downtown Fall River. Yeah, okay. I remember my father, t- he just told me the story recently that uh, this, this, the song Malaguena, this was wow. something that my father had heard and said, boy. I'd love to play that someday. And he asked Imbriglio, do you think I'm ready for that? And he said, sure. And he gave him the music. My father said he ran home from his lesson to go home and start working on that song. You know, wow. yeah. So that's a willing music student. Yeah. Uh, which, which made him the player that he was. So he was a terrific player. Yeah. So my introduction to accordion wasn't by choice. My father was a teacher, so... yeah. Here, take a music, take accordion lessons. Okay. I didn't latch on to the way my father did. No. At, at the accordion studios back then, you had your, your private lessons, mm-hmm. and then you were always an accordion band. It was always in a band, accordion orchestra. I gotcha. Which sounds a lot better than you might think if you've never heard one. If you say <laughs> accordion orchestra, I'm sure people would think, well, you know, equate that to nails on a blackboard. <laughs> but we made some pretty good music, some really good music. Um, but it was all, all classical based, classically yeah. based music. You know, you'd be playing pieces by Mozart or yeah. that type of thing. And you were performing in one of those orchestras for a while? Like, yeah. yeah. And the purpose of the orchestras were really to, toward competition. They were annual, the, the accordion 
association of Rhode Island or New England. It was usually well, Mass actually probably Massachusetts because we were a Fall River. Yeah. Um, but we'd go to Chicopee, Massachusetts once a year. Yeah. There'd be a weekend in a hotel with competitions. There would be band competitions by age. There would be solo competitions, duets. Yeah. Um, as a kid, it was great to be running around a hotel with your friends all weekend. Yeah. Uh, while the, your parents might be in the hospitality suite. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, a lot of the playing was toward that, toward, toward the competition. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, okay. so 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 there was that. But when it get to the end, when it get to be high school, you know, some students w- were serious and would keep on a musical path. Yeah. Um, and some of us went in a different path. Yeah, when the option was um, want to continue. Yeah. In my case, when I graduated high school, I, I got a job, and you know, I kind of put the accordion aside. Okay. And, you know, because I didn't. That that was when it was up up to me. Yeah. Um, it was a stupid choice. It was one of the more foolish choices in my life and the reason i say that is because up until then like i said everything that we were taught was really around classical music Mm -hmm. so we weren't really working scales and chords and this kind of stuff that my father would play later when he you know played out yeah um but it was just at that time that he was starting to delve in that with me and i still remember the first song that i would have learned if i had stuck with it was september of my years um and I just made the stupid teenage choice to walk away from it at that time. Yeah. And that was when I could have, you know, if I had was serious, you know, picked up what made my father the player that when I went to see him would, you know, even depress me, even as a teenage son, you know, to be impressed by your father, then, you know, he was good. Yeah. You know, so, so that was a bad move on my part. Okay. <laughs> In terms of not having those chops. Um, to be able to play the way he played, you know, and transposing and just have that chord vocabulary that, you know, is, is just endless, you know. And gotcha, he just yeah. knew the stuff. Yeah. And when did you move to Rhode Island? Halfway through high school. Okay. Um, yeah. My parents finally were able to scrape enough money together and get out of pocket living and buy a, a house in Tiffany. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Nice. But when did you start performing? You mean aside from the accordion stuff? Yeah, like yeah. At, you know, after yeah. high school or, or... <clears throat> I didn't play anything. I always wanted to play something. And uh I would go to see the local blues bands, you know, there was always blues in the state. This is such a blues like where would you go? Hotbed. Um the Met. Yeah. The original Met was the best. Um first with the dirt floor and then uh, but you know that was a way to get yeah, close. Floor? Yeah, initially it did have a dirt. <laughs> I've never floor. heard that story. All right. Yeah, but you know the Groove Masters, you know Paul Murphy, uh, you know him and uh, and uh, Ken Lyons, uh, oh, yeah, blues yeah. band, and I think and, and then touring people, Johnny Copeland would come through here, um, Coco Taylor would come through here. There was always music coming through here. There was such yeah. a great blues connection here, and I think what really got me started, you know, was seeing these people. And I'm pretty sure it was one night with Ken Lyons, and and he had a harmonica player who still plays around here, Killer Kane. Okay. And um, I think it was that night where it was like, you know, I'm kind of a lazy guy, but that didn't, you know, harmonica's got harmonica's got ten holes. How hard can it be to just, you know, <laughs> you know, I love this sound, and so I picked up a harmonica, and uh, and I blew it and I sucked it and I said that doesn't sound anything like, that, you know. <laughs> um, and I kind of put it aside, um, 
like you're trying to emulate what these yeah it was major just, players like, like I don't know how like, he's getting what he's getting out of it, but <laughs> this, this is not working for me. Yeah. And then I picked up the book at uh, one of my first festivals, Cajun Bluegrass Festival, and it was this book by John Gindick. It was How to Play Country Blues Harmonica. Okay. And early in the book, he unlocked how to get the single note because you know if you pick it up and, and you do, you're going to get a chord or a couple of notes, you know you're not getting that clear sound that you hear from a blues band. Yeah. And once I just learned how to get that single note and stop bending notes, then that was that was it. You yeah. Know, that was really all I needed was that key to unlock that door, and then I then it was just off to the races. Then it was just find things to play along with. Touch the fiery walls of hell Yet through it all We stood tall A perfect parallel Your actions fill your silence Like the ringing of a bell I can wait forever For however long it takes To hear you So that was, I was like almost, I was probably about 29, 30 at that time. And then I had the good fortune that my brother-in-law had a Yamaha guitar that I still have. And he was looking, to, he needed money. He was yep. looking to sell it for a hundred bucks. I bought it. My friend Dave Brown gave me a harmonica rack, like Bob Dylan, you know. Oh, yeah. yeah. And uh, so now I had something to play with. So I got this book called Rise Up Singing, mm -hmm. which is just like 1,200 songs and easy Chords. I had the book, I had a chord chart, I had my little cabin out in Forrester where I could get out of the house so no one could hear what I was doing. Okay. And I right. could sing songs to myself. And once I got good enough to deliver it on the guitar, play along with myself on the harmonica, you know. So, yeah. But I had something, you know. Yeah. Left to my own devices, I probably would have continued in that path and doing more fingerstyle blues or something like that, you know. But, um, and that was all for myself. Nobody else heard this. Yeah. The only time I get to play with someone else was I started going to the Cajun Bluegrass Festival, and that would be an annual event, and it has been every year since then, now that it's the Rhythm and Roots Festival. Yeah. It's still the same roots. Yeah. But that would be my opportunity to jam with people. You know, yeah, Labor Day, yeah. go to the festival, and you know, all you work to be a little bit better than next year, the last year it was, so you could find people to jam with. Because mm -hmm. you know? that was just a lot of the culture of that. Yeah, I didn't have was... anyone. I didn't have access to anyone else. I didn't mm -hmm. know of the musicians. Yeah. Um, that but that's where you that can meet stuff. up and jam and camp with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, at night, you know, kids are in bed and sit around the campfire and play music. Yeah, okay. Or hope people will come by to play music or, you know, have neighbors near you. Because I wasn't leaving my camp at that time. I had kids sleeping there. Yeah. Um, and so, uh, yeah, 
So that was the once a year to, to make music with other people. And it was the first time that when I started doing that, I can still remember clearly having a neighbor that played music. He was this guy from Pennsylvania. I met him that one and only time. Yeah. He played fiddle. He played guitar. And I just remember he and I playing and I was playing harmonica. And I can just remember at one point on one song where, where he went, the direction he went with the music was the same direction I went in harmonica. Like the first moment of like improvisational click, you know, where you clicked with someone, you know, where yeah. you, you both mentally went someplace at the same time. You anticipated something, you know, it was the first time I could feel what it feels like to, to not just play music with someone, but to get in that moment with music yeah. so that what you're doing, the two of you, even though we were both very crude, you know, especially me, I was really new to this, but, but the music yeah. took on its own direction. Yeah. You know, it, yeah. it pulled you, you didn't pull it, you know, yeah. and it was, it was brief and fleeting, the synergy, of it. but it was something that I now knew that you could get. Yeah. You know? And I think that was the spark that kept it going. Yeah, so where did it go from there? I mean, uh... well, it, from that, I met through the festival and through my friend Dave Brown. He introduced me to, to Greg Andriozzi. Um, yeah. And Greg had two, had, there were two important connections to Greg. One, Greg, uh, ran, he, he had a volunteer crew at the festival that kind of supported the workshops at the festival. Yeah. Um, so for one, that ended up being, a gig for me and my kids as we grew up in the festival. Mm-hmm. Uh, we worked for Greg every year. Um, so that was great. And, and there was that connection. But more importantly, Greg had a Friday night jam. And I lived in Forster. Greg was on Durfee Hill in Gloucester. So not far away. Yep. So Dave connected me. Dave Brown connected me with Greg. And I went in 1992 at the festival. And that next Friday night, I went to Greg's jam. Nervous as all heck because I only, you know, I was, I could hold my own on harmonicas, but guitar, I wasn't even, I hadn't even conditioned myself to learn how to play properly with a pick. I was strumming with my fingers and just strumming chords and singing. Yeah. Um, but it was great. Yeah. And so that was that from that one Friday, every Friday after that, my week would, you know, my work week would be looking forward to that Friday night. Yeah. You know, and if there was, I would try to make that every single Friday night. And yeah. that, that, that made all the difference in the world. Because again, you know, that's, that was my motivation. So every week you want it to be, when you're doing it weekly, you want it to be better every week. Yes. You know, you want it to have a new song to play the next week, you know, or, so that was, that was a real driving force. Um, and how many people were typically part of that jam? Yeah, it was the cool thing about having a jam like that is there were there's always fringe people that just know it's going to be there. So yeah. even if they show up once in a while, they can count on it being there. But there were regulars. There was Greg, and uh, Greg unfortunately just just passed away just uh, a little while ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I always called him the father of Friday night. You know, because <laughs> because he just made that for me. You know, that that was such a life changing moment. You know, in terms of my music. Yeah. Um, but it was Greg and he was always Mr. Percussion. Uh, at that time, he had this old pasta pot that he had beat the crap out of the bottom of it. We'd play it with brushes. So he was the percussion guy. He did that on a rub board. Yeah. Um, Don Lucignan was his neighbor. He played fiddle. Everyone else was a guitar player. Okay. I played guitar. Don Lurgio, a good friend of mine who I met at that, at, through the Cajun Festival, mm-hmm. um, 
before he also ended up in living in Foster, yeah. uh, which coincidentally. And so he was part of Greg's jam. And there was a guy, Ralph, um, who played banjo and then decided he didn't want to play banjo. I, I have his banjo somewhere. <laughs> so there wasn't much banjo there. So it was really guitar. And then other friends that I see all the time, Ron Tabley and Dan Parker, when yeah. they started coming around, they played guitar. Yeah. Steve Denobly, he played guitar. But when the music took a dead direction for, for us was uh, Ron had a neighbor that gave him a banjo. Somewhere around that time, Steve Denobly picked up a mandolin. I can't quite remember how that came into his hands. But that kind of changed the direction. Well, now we have to play bluegrass, right? <laughs> so when the good thing was, I don't know how we knew this, but there was a bond jam every Friday night in Rehoboth at the play at Charlie Pike. Charlie Pike was of the legendary name in bluegrass at mm-hmm. the time because of his Friday night jams. And everyone who knew played bluegrass around here knew about Charlie's jam. Okay, yeah. And there would be multiple jams uh, because his barn, he had a barn, enough room for, and different rooms for multiple yeah, jams. like literally a barn. It became, yeah, literally <laughs> a barn. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and actually, fast forward, Charlie's son carries that tradition today. He'll have occasional Sunday jams in his barn. And, yeah, the chickens will work, run around. It, it is a barn. <laughs> That's so cool. But the Friday night thing became this epic thing. Um, actually, local songwriter Michael Troy has a song called Charlie Pike. Yeah. And it kind of captures what those Friday nights were like. Yeah. Um, in that song. But so we knew about that. And so Ron started making regular pilgrimages there. Cause if you wanted to learn bluegrass, that was where you went to learn bluegrass. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so that kind of put us, you know, off on that path. Yeah. That, that was roughly really what year was that when you started playing bluegrass more frequently? It was probably not too far into it. I bet it was early nineties. I bet it was still only like 94 or so. Cool. We probably hadn't had the big all guitar jam for too long before it started to diversify. Yeah. And, you know, so we, it's not like we said, oh, we're not going to play these other songs anymore. Yeah. It just gave you a whole new vocabulary or, you know, list of songs to stop yeah. working on. Yeah. And so we slowly learned how to play bluegrass. Yeah. Which, you know, took a while. Longer for some of us than others, you know, me, myself, I mean, the reason I get into teaching or, or giving workshops on how to jam bluegrass was remembering how we first approached it. So yeah. our first, at the guitar, as, as guitar players, like myself and Don Lurgio, I think the way we first approached it was you get the loudest guitar you could get and the thickest strings and you played as loud as you could, you know? Yeah. And it was, it was you know, Took a while before you realized this shouldn't be a competition. I think we're supposed to be kind of a little bit more nuanced. Here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Some nuance to you know, when we're watching, you know, yeah. all these other professional players. <laughs> right, and so you learn that really, it's 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 really in how you play. It's how you play the rhythm, and it's more how you play with your ears open to the other people. You know, once you get it all together, it just gets a lot better. The music, you know, there's more of that jamming aspect. Yeah. And the better you get, and the more in tune with, with 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 people you get, and the more you can experience that. Yeah. So, so I mean, I guess just to kind of go off of that, you are now a, I guess, is it a licensed Wernick method? How was it? Uh, yeah. Referred to, but you know, like uh, Pete Wernick. Um, yep. Can you talk a little bit about him and and what you do, and also just about uh, Gray Fox, which is you know one of the premier bluegrass festivals that you are a part of? Can you talk about that? Yeah, yeah. So how I get into that is, I I played the, the wrong bluegrass rhythm for a while, 
and, and kind of by tr- learning on my figured out on my own how, yep. how to get it closer to being right. What came out of that group that that jam at Greg's back then, aside from you know a great circle of friends that is still my close circle of friends, yeah, is a band came out of that with that we called Hot Water, and that band started a monthly jam in Foster at a place called the Maple Glen that's now was called the Maple Glen now it's the Woodland Meeting House. And that is the first Sunday of every month in the afternoon. And we started that jam back then, right around 94 or so, when we were first, you know, getting that band together. And that's still a monthly jam that just goes on by itself. But anyways, that jam went on for a long time with the PA system. And then eventually we did away with the PA system. And just once we got more into bluegrass jamming, we just let it just be an open jam. Mm-hmm. And people just know that the first Sunday of the month you show up and you jam bluegrass. Yeah. Um, and, you know, be great jams. Um, and there, I just remember there's one, one specific Sunday. It was summertime. It was beautiful. So you, you wanted to play outside. And I, w- I got there early. I just started, took out my guitar out of the case uh, under a tree. Someone else came and we had a two person jam, three person jam. And that jam grew to like maybe a dozen people. And it still was a good jam. Yeah, and then one guitar player came and just kind of overplayed, and basically was playing the way that I started when it was all about <laughs> you know volume. Yeah, and I just said, man, I wish I could, you know, give that person a little bit just, of advice. Yeah, uh, but it gave me the idea to put together workshops where I could, you know, give that advice because while it took me years to figure out what I needed to do or what I thought I was supposed to do, I could tell someone else in not too long how they could deliver that rhythm yeah. and, and be more of a participant yeah, rather than kind of a hindrance, a jam buster. Yeah. You know? So you're teaching not only just like the basic chords and the basic kind yeah. of theory behind bluegrass, but also a little bit more about the etiquette. It's all about, yeah. Just how to, you know, have, right. have more fun with the people. Yep. You know, so. And so I really, I get the idea to pitch that at Gray Fox. Like you said, that is the premier bluegrass festival in New York every third weekend in July. Yeah. Um, I think it might have been called Winterhawk at the time. I don't think it switched names yet. Okay. But they always have a grassroots tent with a bunch of workshops, you know, that are accessible. They have a master's class workshop where you can go and be dazzled by the best of the best. Yeah. yeah. But there was always a grass stand. There was always, because bluegrass is really approachable. I mean, yeah. you don't have to be a really great player to stop playing bluegrass and to have fun jamming bluegrass. Mm-hmm. And so I pitched the idea of, doing like a guided slow jam and they took me up on it. It mm-hmm. happened I happened to catch them at a year where they were looking to go in that direction. Yeah. By us doing the guidance and also giving some instruction, the idea is to have people be able to walk away better able to go to their campground now and, and jam with others. Yeah. So that was my idea back then, but I didn't grow up in bluegrass. So I was writing some jam etiquette rules and I wanted to make sure that they were valid because I didn't want to go to a bluegrass festival, put something in print with my name on it and have, you know, a real bluegrass person say, what's this guy talking about? (laughs) He was at some yes concert a couple of years ago (laughs) and now he's telling me how to play bluegrass, you know? So the more I looked into it, the more I found that, you know, Pete Wernick, who's, you know, Dr. Banjo and played in Hot Rise and plays in Hot Rise. I mean, that is a real passion for educating. And, And so he, um, for many years, had bluegrass camps, kind of mm-hmm. like day-long camps, doing kind of what I was doing with a 90-minute slow jam, mm-hmm. you know. 
So I did my thing at Gray Fox, and uh, they, after two years, they allowed me to have my own tent at Gray Fox to do yeah. this, so we could make it more of a program. Yeah. Uh, slow jam, but then we'd have individual instrument. You know, spend an hour with how to do your instrument in, in bluegrass. But around six years ago, I realized I learned that Pete has was no longer the only person doing Warnick Method camps. He had mm-hmm. developed the Warnick Method to the point where he's written guidelines and teaching guidelines. There's teachers' guides. And he'd been certifying teachers worldwide to carry this on, carry the yeah, torch, because okay. he's only one person, right? Uh, and it has a professional, uh, muse, muse, uh, you know, life to, to, to uh, pro, you know, to, to, to maintain. Yeah, with, yeah. uh, so there's only so many people you can reach. Mm-hmm. And so once I found that out, um, I got in touch with him and said, I'm interested in getting certified. And I started doing Wernick Method classes here in right Pawtucket. Yeah. Um, first at a local studio, and then we were remodeling in my house here, and we built a studio to be able to do the Wernick Method classes. Yeah. So what we do is we shoot to have a class of about 10 to 12 people. We max out at 12 because I don't, I want, we want to do it here in home, at the home, keep maintaining this space and not have it overwhelming and yeah. still have a personal touch. Yeah. So we'll start each session in the big group. We'll teach an element, um, you know, how to follow the chords, what, you know, how to follow the keys, how to read the capo, you know, those type, you know, we'll cover one element each week and then we'll break into two different jams. So we've designed this place so that we've got soundproofing so we can have two different rooms. Then our goal is really to extract ourselves as much as we can from that jam. So the yeah. students are jamming on their own. Yeah. So what that does, one, is it kind of forces them to step up to the plate, um, but also it lets them feel empowered that they are jamming. Yeah. Even if they came in here and all they could do is make three chords kind of, you know, I can make it, I can play, I can play G, C, D, A, and I can get from one to the other without a delay. Yeah. And that's all I know. Yeah. The first time, the first day here, they'll be playing and jamming together. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think of two bluegrass as, as in two different ways. When you go to a bluegrass festival and you're watching the bands on the stage, you're watching the, the top, the best of the best of the musicians. Yeah. And, and they're playing, they're dazzling you to the point that as, as an audience member, you say, how do you do? How can a person do that? Yeah, you know, yeah, how can you come up with the, the, these ideas so quickly and have them be so clean and proficient and and have the right tone and, and the speed? And it, they just blow your mind. Yeah. But at the same time, as good as that is, the other end of the spectrum is what I just said. If you can make, if you can get your hand around four chords, you know, without having a lot of pause, mm-hmm. you, you're ready to play bluegrass music. Yeah. It's not going to be. Brian Tony Sutton Rice, or, yeah. Brian Sutton, bluegrass music. <laughs> yeah. But you can have as much fun as Tony Rice or Brian Sutton yeah. by just not having a few, you know, if once you, we can help show you how to lock in the rhythm, it doesn't have to be played fast as long as it's together and you feel what that, what that experience I had that first time where you clicked with someone. Yeah. Um, you know, that's what we give people. And yeah. that's the motivation for them to continue doing it and playing together. Yeah. And continuing to practice so that they can, you know, make music together. Yeah. And so that's the Wernick method. And, you know, yeah. like I said, so we give a class here, 
we try to pull ourselves out, mm-hmm. you know, and let the people play. We might step in if, uh, we always like to have two bass players when we break into two jams. Yeah. If we don't, then key. one of us will be the bass player. Yeah, there's like key elements yeah. of, of what a bluegrass yeah. jam probably needs, like right. instrumentation-wise. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but for the most part, it, it's really the, the people jamming on their own mm-hmm. so that they can go and then do that. Yeah. When can they sign up for your classes here in Pawtucket? We do either one or two here in Pawtucket. Um, we've got one starting in March. First mm-hmm. Saturday in March, so it'll be the fourth Saturdays in March, and then the first Saturday in April, five weeks. Yeah. And then we'll do one in the fall. So that's been good. We've been doing that for about five years. Yeah. And uh, we've got a good thing going. Um, I've seen some of the you know bands that have started yeah. from this jam over that, the years, and it's pretty that's cool to like just kind of run into them, and be like, hey, I'm. <laughs> yeah, and when we go out to jams, you know. If, if, if we, if we see the people here and then we never see them out at the jams, then I hope they had fun and they all do because we get great feedback. But yeah, hopefully you'll find the time or the connections to get out to a jam. And there's bluegrass jams available yeah. all over the state, yeah. you know, in all this area, I should say. And to see the people that have taken our classes out at the jams and to see them better every time we see them, yeah. you know, that's, that's the best thing. That's great. Yeah. The absolute best thing was an was unintended when I get into this. Like I told you, my motivation was really to help guide what your instrument did, your mm-hmm. instrument's role in the jam. What we've, um, our most rewarding stories from give, from doing the Wernick methods here in Pawtucket have been getting people to sing that never thought that they'd sing uh, okay, before. Yeah. And we've had more than a few people come here because they wanted to play mandolin. Or guitar, and they wanted to know what to do in a bluegrass jam, but they didn't come to sing. Yeah. And they never intended to sing, and they're in their 50s and 60s, and they've never sung out loud in front of anybody. And we'll do some round twisting and encouragement, because the, 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 you know, the mantra here is when you're in this place, this is your safe zone. Yeah. You can't go wrong here. We're all in this together. We're all learning together. Yeah. And the people that we've gotten to do that, to get the nerve to sing, and then feel how much fun that is and then come back the next week and say, you know, I never wanted to do that, but I can't wait to learn my next song. That's cool. You know, that I think that's the most life changing thing that we can pass on. Yeah. Because you've given someone something that they should have had because we are born with it. Yeah. But in our culture, it's not quite as natural as it is in other cultures. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that was me too. You know, like I said, until I found Greg's, uh, Greg Andrews' Friday Night Jam, I was in my early 30s. I hadn't sung anything in front of anybody. Yeah. And it took a lot of nerve to go to Greg's and do that the first time, you know? Yeah. You know, and as you're looking with one eye to see if anyone's, you know, laughing. <laughs> so, that worked out all right. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll do it again. Yeah. You, know? you don't have to be born with that voice to have fun singing yeah. and playing music. Yeah. You know, we're not teaching people how to play bluegrass so that they can go perform at Gray Fox. We're teaching people how to play bluegrass so they can go have fun in their living room with a bunch of friends yeah. and play with bluegrass. But for no other reward than the, the, the fun of doing it. Yeah. That's fantastic. And uh, I know that the uh, Gibson Hill Bluegrass Festival has been going on for a few years now. Have you uh, been a part of that in any way? Um, yeah. So what... 
you know, there's a great bluegrass community in this area, which is stronger than some people might realize until you start tapping into it. Yeah. But fortunately, I mean, also, yeah, like what Sal Sacco has been doing with the bluegrass throwdown, like, I don't know if you've seen the lineup of what he has going yeah. on at Nickanese, like over the next couple of months, but it is like yeah. ridiculous who he's bringing in, like some of the top performers that are playing these major festivals, like damn tall buildings and, yeah. Um, just, yeah, he's bringing in some, some great talent. Yeah. By virtue of that. And, and Sal is also the president of the of Reba, Rhode Island Bluegrass Alliance, mm-hmm. which while it says Rhode Island, yeah, it's, it's really Southern New England. Um, you can and, check out the episode with Sal that we've done. You know? <laughs> yeah. Early on in the pod. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, that, that's just. While there was that community, it, it didn't make the community happen. The community was already, already there, yeah. but it ended up just being this connection. Yeah. Where now the community has regular events other than just the jams that happen. Yeah. Um, you and know, there's that- an annual picnic, which is now t- turning into a, like a mini festival. Yeah. There's the annual Hall of Fame award. Um, yeah, uh, that type of thing. Right. And then, yeah, the, the Wednesday nights at Nickabee's really. They're bringing in top talent. Yeah. It's great, great music. Um, yeah. But yeah, with Gibson Hill, it seems like that's and kind so, of synthesized a lot of those bands that are kind of playing around. Yeah, so there's always been a desire to have a local bluegrass festival. You know, at the spot where Gibson Hill is, at that same spot, we had a festival. I think we called it the Sterling Park Bluegrass Festival. And that was probably back in the, uh, that was probably late 90s, I think. Oh, okay. Um, and actually, the first one I went to, we actually had the Gibson Brothers play it. Oh, wow. Before they became as big as they did. <laughs> you know, the, the organizer at that time decided to get one ringer and then a bunch of us vocal bands. Yeah. Um, so we did that for a while, and that kind of ran its course. Uh, but the, the desire to have a local festival never went away. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's now back. Um, at, I think I think that that's pretty much that energy is what morphed into that, gotcha. plus the yeah. whole Reba connection is what morphed into what's now the Gibson Hill cool. um, Festival, which is the same spot. It's yeah. in Sterling, Connecticut, which is like a, like two stones throw from the Rhode Island border. So yeah, that's coming really up close in by. June, right? In June, um, they're teasing the big lineups coming out soon. Nice, but uh, but it's a great festival. It's a tiny. It's it's a nice introduction to to a festival because it's such a small campground. Yeah, and it's a real campground. You know, you don't have to live in Port of Johns. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's not and, like a former farm, you yeah. know, like, or a farm right. the weekend before. It's not just, that's right. It's not just a hay field in the <laughs> middle of nowhere. Yeah. Um, and it's close to home and there'll be, it's, there'll be some great local bands and they'll, they'll be picking. Cool. Um, so, so I had that hot water band and that, again, that was Greg Andreozzi. That was, uh, Don Lusignan and Don Lurgio and Ron Tavely. And um, who was, uh, Swampgrass? Swampgrass just kind of came out of that. That was me and Ron, and Don Lusignan, and Steve Denobly, from those guys from yeah. from from Hot was it Water. A different style of music. Yeah, we just were looking to. I don't know what we were looking for. <laughs> <laughs> oh, actually, I don't know. I do. I do know how it started. It started because at the time when we were doing the Friday night jams at Greg's and uh, and having the Hot Water thing, I had written some original songs. Ron mm-hmm. had. Uh, Ron and I together had written some original songs. He had a couple of chord progressions that I put words to. And we decided uh, at some point to try to record them. Mm-hmm. And so that ended up coming in, becoming the Swamp Grass. And then we met um, 
Hannah Grant, a female uh, singer who had a beautiful voice, mm-hmm. and uh, then that kind of really changed the whole yeah sound of the band. And where were you? Then we asked something that actually sounded good. <laughs> <laughs> where were you playing with them? We we played um, the most steady thing we had. We had a monthly thing going at the Oak Hill Tavern in uh, North Kingstown. We play like one Sunday afternoon a month. Yeah, and that was fun. We got a kind of little following doing that. Nice. But our biggest two gigs were when when the Cajun Bluegrass Festival was morphing into the Rhythm and Roots Festival. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a change in ownership in the festivals. Um, you know, Chuck Wentworth was part of both, but they were, they did a fundraiser at the Odeum in East Greenwich mm-hmm. um, to raise money, and uh, they got some ringers. There was a band called Salamander Crossing at the time. The Austin Lounge Lizards played. Slade Cleves, a songwriter. Played. Oh yeah, yeah. And uh, someone decided to throw us a bone and get a local act in there, so Swampgrass actually get to open for all of those bands. Yeah, that was, that was pretty cool. And since we got to do that, that was in support of the first Rhythm and Roots Festival. They kind of uh, rewarded us by letting us play at the Rhythm and Roots Festival, the, at the, the first one in in one of the workshop tents. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yeah. Cool. That was also about the end of Swampgrass, but uh-huh. so we went out on a high note. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I also want to touch on is that uh, you started playing a lot more Irish music. Can you talk about how you've moved into that? I'm not sure what the spark was. The spark might have been... Well, for, for one thing with, with me is, uh, you know, I play once a month at the Village Tavern in Situate. Mm-hmm. The third Sunday of every month with Kevin Fallon and Fred Wilkes and Rick DeRocco. We are the Gobshites, yeah. which is a Kevin Fallon creation. <laughs> um, and I've been doing that with him since 2002. Yeah. Um, and Kevin, and before then, Kevin was someone that I kind of knew at a, at a distance as as a musician who was just a whole lot better than us. And he's just got music coming out of his pores. Yeah. And, and with anything he picks up. And uh we just knew him as his you know, mostly as a fiddler. Mm-hmm. Um I kinda knew him as a distance. I lived in Foster, um and that whole area up there, Kevin has been well known for, for, for a long, long, long time. And so I kind of knew him at a distance. And then maybe through the uh bluegrass jam at the Maple Glen, I'm not quite sure how he became part of a jam circle. And then, as luck would have it, he just eventually became my neighbor in Foster. Oh, really? <laughs> so, uh, but we were already becoming friends before that, so that just kind of got lucky. And uh, I had a little cabin out in Foster, a little outbuilding where I could have jams, and so Kevin became part of those jams. But but even before that, before I really had a good connection to him, and I kind of still knew him from a distance, we knew each other, he knew I was into bluegrass, he would often play regularly be part of Christmas Carol at Trinity mm-hmm. uh, as a musician. 
And at the time, I was Maggie and I, my wife and I were ushering at Christmas at, at Trinity. And it was one year, and it was 2001. It was the end of 2001 that Christmas. Uh, we were ushering, and Kevin was ready to make his grand entrance as a musician. And uh, he was in this area where we were standing as ushers. And he leaned over and said, hey, you want to play St. Patty's Day with me? <laughs> and just the fact that Kevin would ask me to play, the words yes came out of my mouth before I even considered what that was going what to take. Yeah. <laughs> Not what songs do I need to play or anything like that, but just... Yeah. Because what will happen in the meantime is the accordion came back into my life. Okay. Uh, I told you I put it down after high school. Well, because of that whole Friday night jam with uh, Greg Angiosi, at Greg Angiosi's, and uh, because of our connection to the Cajun Bluegrass Festival, while we were playing our folk music and playing our bluegrass music, we were still, Cajun was still there. And it wasn't something we really that. drove for. Yeah. But um, it was actually Don Lurgio, who was part of, you know, Greg's and our band Hot Water, <laughs> had learned a D.L. Maynard Cajun song in our own special way. I don't think a real Cajun would have called it Cajun, but we kind of had the Cajun <laughs> rhythm going. But the more we did it, um, I started thinking, I wonder if I could get my old piano accordion, you know, it's not a Cajun accordion. Yeah, like a squeeze box. And kind of get that feel, mm -hmm. you know, which is really just a feel. It's really just a pulse, you know, to get that. Yeah. And I, and I did. And it's very crude. It's just making chords, but I was, I was really in there just to kind of get, add that Cajun yeah, okay. feel to the thing. Yeah. Yeah. And it became a regular thing. Yeah. And so that, so, and once I got that going, I, I added a couple of my own Cajun songs to it. And so when we played as that band, Hot Water, we would always have a few Cajun songs in the repertoire, which mm -hmm. was a nice mix for people. Because we were, that band was, we were never really making real bluegrass. It was more of, we were just, we were able to get a real good groove that was bluegrass influenced, you know. Yeah. And then it was nice to be able to switch gears and be kind of Cajun influenced, you know. Yeah. It just makes people tap their toes, you know. Yeah. Um, so I had the accordion back in my life, and that's what Kevin wanted me to, was asking me to play. Oh, okay. And I knew that, but when I, the commitment, I didn't realize, I didn't really, like I said, I just said yes because I was so flattered. Yeah. <laughs> but what that meant was now you're not just pulsing chords anymore. Now you need to learn tunes. And from Christmas to St. Patty's Day, you have a lot of work to do. <laughs> yeah. And you're almost the focus of some of these songs now too. You're not yeah. just the like kind of rhythm in the back. That's right. Kind of, like, so now along, it's you know? playing these tunes note for note. The way Kevin's playing them, so the fiddle and the, and the guitar, and the guitar. I mean, the fiddle and, and the and the accordion would really be playing in unison. Yeah. So that was a lot of work. That was a <laughs> lot of work. But the payoff was, we we played two nights in a row at Chester's in Harmony. I'm not sure what it's called anymore. On Route Harmony Forge. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah. Um, and Kevin was well known then. And yeah. it was Kevin and, and Fred Wilkes. Uh, but Fred Wilkes was playing guitar in that incarnation, and Bob Potter was the bass player. But I had borrowed a digital recorder from a, someone who lived near me in Foster, and uh, that was, you know, not 2002, so it was kind of early days of, of yeah, having that kind of recorder. So I, I bought a digital recorder, and the way we rehearsed, you know, there was a lot of material to cover. We'd cover a little piece of the, of the, the song. It would either be a singing song or a tune. We got that one. Move on. I knew I wasn't able to really appreciate how it all came together until the gig. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, some of the accordion parts that Kevin had me learn uh, for some of the singing songs, especially. I recorded that gig, and it was the best sounding 
thing I had ever been a part of mm-hmm. by a long shot. I went home that night and put on headphones and I was so impressed by what we did. I listened to the whole gig <laughs> again before I went to bed Yeah, because it was, I, it just, I was so impressed with what I was a part of, you know, like I said, I'd never made music with people that with that together, it was such a tight operation. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was cool. And then did a couple of gigs and wait another year for St. Patrick's Day to come around and yeah. work again to brush them off. Of course, it gets a little easier every year. Once the Village Tavern opened up, uh, which opened up first as Bentley's and then the Village Tavern, then that became our regular mm-hmm. spot in Situate. And we were able to take that got that St. Patty's Day gig, and I'll make it a monthly thing, mm-hmm. the third Sunday of the month. We've been doing that for a long time. Yeah. That's, that's a really cool spot. It's like it's, it's like a, really compact in there. It, is. it has that like yeah. really like pub feel. Yeah. It's, uh, it's good food, good people. Yeah, it's small. It was it yeah, wasn't, but I, I don't know if it, it wasn't was, built to fit a band. Yeah, <laughs> but I think it that adds to the element of it that if yeah. there was a bigger spot and you guys are on a stage, it wouldn't have that yeah. that vibe to it. So. Right. And it, it's, it's so a, definitely it's a, check it out. Yeah, it's a blast. And then, and by doing it every month, you know, you, you, you just get tighter and tighter. Yeah. Uh, but those guys are such top shelf musicians anyways, you know, it just, it just really locks in. And so that, that, that kind of got me into the Irish stuff. And I think that's probably what got me more interested in knowing what happened, uh, with, at an Irish session, like Patrick's pub. Yeah. And so I went to a session, you know, early on. I didn't really know many tunes. I knew the tunes I knew from Kevin. Mm-hmm. But um that's more of the a jam but with it's know, a Celtic it's Irish. A, yeah, Irish session. Yeah. So and an Irish session it's not like a bluegrass. A bluegrass jam, you can walk into a bluegrass jam and not know the song and <laughs> you can still participate in the song. In an Irish session, you know the tune or you don't know the tune. <laughs> you know, that's there's you're not faking because because you're playing the tune in unison. I got you. Um, yeah, you know. So um, so I've been working on more of that, but I don't really bring the accordion to that oddly enough. And I think the reason is well, I know the reason is the reason is I travel for work, mm-hmm. and um, once my work life uh, changed that I was doing more traveling, that's when I picked up a mandolin. Wasn't mm-hmm. because I had a burning desire to be a mandolin player, but I had a burning desire to always have an instrument with me when I traveled. Yeah, because we pick it and, um, yeah. The mandolin is just compact. Um, yeah. I don't need to be traveling with a guitar because you know, I'm only looking for something to do in a hotel room at night. You yeah. Know? So the mandolin became that travel instrument. And my motivation for using that as an Irish instrument, as opposed to, you know, working it into my bluegrass, was to just know more tunes. Because mm-hmm. there's so many Irish tunes. If you go to an Irish session and, and you want to be able to participate, well, the more tunes you know, the more you can participate. Yeah. But, you know, I can remember when I first started going, you know, if, if, if there were two or three sets that were called that, that I could participate in, I said, wow, that was a good night, you know? Yeah. And the more you go, then the more you learn, the more tunes you know, then there's more tunes that you can be a part of. Yeah. It just it makes it that much more fun. And it's, it's your motivation to keep learning more tunes. Yeah. Well, cool. And yeah, so you're talking about the Irish session, and that's uh, Patrick's Pub in, yeah. in Providence on Smith Street. That's right? Smith Street on Tuesdays. Bob Druin runs that. Mm-hmm. He, he's the nicest guy in the world. He runs a great session. Um, it's very open, very welcoming. Um, I'm sure if you're just a fan of that music, it's a good place to come it really and check is. it out. It's a great scene. Yeah. And he's been doing that for over 20 years. Cool. That's, that's pretty cool. 
As far as playing as a performer, my absolute mo most fun thing to do is to be a side man. Yeah. Um, so there's all the fun I have with the gobshites, um, with all the tunes we know, but <laughs> it comes back to the accordion again as far as being a side man. Yeah. Is the instrument that I was eager to shed, shun when I could <laughs> is the instrument that has gotten me all of the best opportunities and the most unique and the most cool opportunities in my adult life. Mm -hmm. By having my son Matthew uh, be married to Nikki Lee, a dancer and a choreographer and photographer, mm -hmm. um, my connection to Nikki, plus being able to play an accordion, has gotten me opportunities to accompany dance programs that, that Nikki's done, uh, one at the Firehouse Theater, one at Ballard Park, in, uh, in Newport, it was an outdoor thing where mm -hmm. I get to hide on the top of a cliff and let the music kind of roll down. And uh, one that she connected me to that she wasn't even a part of. I sat on a stage solo, um, kind of in the shadows, and played an Edith Piaf tune uh, solo while this couple danced. This was up in Cambridge. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, those are just one-off. Those are cool because they're one-off things. You, you practice for a gig. Yeah. You do the gig. And then you move on. It's yeah. done, but you know, you've given yourself another musical experience along the way. And so the other things that that's done is gotten me side gigs with someone like one of the ones that lasted for a while was I was in Marianne Rossoni's band, a couple mm -hmm. of different incarnations of that. At that time, our band was Jack Gauthier, Joe Potenza, Dan Hahn, as backup vocalists, uh, Betsy Dake and Virginia McCormick. So that was. I was your all. I was the reed guy, accordion and, and, and harmonica. Yeah. And by being able to add those two uh, to, to a songwriter or to that is, I love it. You know, because between the two instruments, there's a place in every song that they'll be able to fit in, depending on the song. Um, the improvisational part of music is is my favorite part of the music, which is probably why I'm so gravitated to to bluegrass. And why I've always loved those side man gigs because they're yeah. always unique. You know, you're not playing off a sheet. You're, yeah. You're, you're you're playing with the music. I'd rather not know what the song is going in. Oh because, really? Because because it's nice to you know let the harmonica kind of take itself. You can kind of get yourself into the music. And there's been times, and again, it's the whole improvisational thing. There's just been times where you know you get in the right mood and you get yourself locked, and then you. Stuff comes out of your instrument that surprises even you. Yeah. You know? And uh, so when you're doing these things, you're not necessarily like writing your parts. You no. just need to know yeah. what key it's in or whatever else. Yeah. No. If I was, I, I will intentionally try not to play the same thing. Yeah. Just to make it interesting for myself and to keep myself in the moment. Cool. Yeah. And so 
I've gotten other gigs by pl- having those instruments. You know, I've done uh, things with uh, with Mary King. Mary King's a local fiddler and mm-hmm. uh, books a lot of gigs. So I had a band with her and Ron Tabley for a while, the Sidewalk Stompers, and then um, play with uh, at, at, at Rhythm and Roots. I played, you know, I did that gig volunteering with uh, Greg Andrelli for a while at Rhythm and Roots, but when I left that, it was to go and play in the family tent. Mm-hmm. With Mike Fishman, Kathy Claspa Torch, and, and John Souza, they had a band called the Red Tide Ramblers, and we yep. play in the family tent. And again, it's all because of the accordion. Yeah, yeah. Um, and knowing how to play SpongeBob SquarePants on the accordion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was always a hit. You know? <laughs> yeah, so those those have been some of the the, the fun things. Mm-hmm. We've also played with Joanne Lurgio. Yep, got to do some recording. I know I had a connection with Jack Gauthier down at. Um, Lake West Studios for a while. Okay. So uh, Joanne recorded her first uh, CD there. And Kevin Fallon, you know, my music brother there in the Gobshites, he was helping her produce that. Mm-hmm. So he plays on that. And, uh, yeah, so she sent me some some uh, some recordings. So I played some accordion and some harmonica on some of those songs. Mm-hmm. And then uh, some accordion on one of Marianne's uh, records. Um, and then... Jack's son Jesse Liam, yeah, played some accordion on some of his uh, stuff. So, with the accordion, you know, it's it's uh, it's the it's the law of the the rule of supply and demand. Mm-hmm. You know, why do you get a lot of gigs when you're an accordion player? There's not a lot of accordion players. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and while it, you know the accordion has went through that Lawrence Walk phase where it was kind of shunned. You know, as as music has evolved and there's a lot more interest in roots music, accordion is a nice instrument. Yeah, you know, and where does it fit in songwriting music? It by just not being really present. It's 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 part of the texture, you know. And if you can play it tastefully and stay out of the way, you know, it it really adds a lot. Yeah, it's nothing fancy. Um, and I remember my first recording. I forget how many years ago that was. Bill Pedersen um, at Stable Studios in Newport. I don't even know if that place is still there, but Bill Pedersen had one song. That he wanted some accordion on. Someone connected me with him, and he sent me the recording. And I worked and worked and worked. I said, "We're really only coming up with this like chordal things, you know." Yeah. I don't know how much they want. And he went to the studio and said, "This is what I came up with. That's oh, just what we want. That's just <laughs> what we want." And the more I've done that and done it with Joanne and and Marianne, you realize not that because that's where the accordion belongs. Yeah. You know, it, it can. You don't want it to be in the way. Yeah. It's you know, it's like the organ player in, in the band. It's just doesn't have to be fancy solos it's just a nice texture if you can you know, play yeah. it the right way it seems like everybody else has someone or at least a place to go with just a prayer well sometimes you hear too much when it's too quiet and you're the only one you know is there And the rain looks like diamonds on the windshield And there ain't no place to go and heaven's closed or Who the hell I ever cross to get this bad deal Or does anybody know the words to God's favorite song. And uh, 
you've played with Atwater Donnelly as well. Yeah, that was flattering. I got to play accordion on one of uh, Aubrey's songs that she wrote. Oh, cool. One of their last recordings. It's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, that that's been one of the great things to 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 to, to even start playing music as late as I did. You know, not kind of the accordion, but to be able to. You know, I didn't stop playing guitar, you know, harmonica guitar till I was like you know, 29, 30, 31 years old, you know, mm-hmm. and to be, to be starting that late and then just by being in Rhode Island and just connecting with the right people, being in Foster didn't hurt at the time. I was, I got an yeah, Elwood. It like it was a good like, yeah. base of. Yeah. Know, at the like, time. Yeah. Talented had the, musicians that just yeah. happen to be living next to you. And, yeah. <laughs> internationally known people that yeah. are just my neighbor, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, even people, you know, like, uh, you know, like the, the people like Mary King and, and John, you know, and, and Mike, you know, those guys were fourth street string band. You know, I was just a fan of fourth street string band, but mm-hmm. to take my kids to their gigs, you know, and at Warner and Donnelly, I mean, I don't think there's many traditional folk acts from this state that have been able to do it or from anywhere to be able to play the music that they play mm-hmm. as traditional as it is and to be able to be successful. Yeah. That's, that, that's, that's quite an achievement. Yeah. I mean, it's, it says a lot to Aubrey as a business person, but it says a lot to them as people and as musicians. But, you know, when I first started playing, these are all people I would go to see, and, you know, it didn't seem like that many years, but I guess it was that many years before they became friends and you know, people you played with. Yeah. Um, I remember going to some barn jams that, that Aubrey and Elwood had because uh, they had moved to Foster at some point. Mm-hmm. And then I got uh, involved with Elwood at the Peep Toad Coffee House and I did the booking there for a while. And uh, Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think that was, Elwood had started it. Um, and it was and where was that? In Foster, at the North Foster Baptist Church. Okay. Right on East Coast like Coffee House performance space? Yeah. So it's kind of like Stone Soup Coffee House. Yeah. Um, and like a lot of other coffee houses in a church. Mm-hmm. Um, it was once a month from September to May. We'd have nine line shows a year. And so, you know, it was right up the street from my house. So, I mean, if someone puts a venue like that near you, just like any other venue, either you support it or it dies. Mm-hmm. Right? So, um figure the best way to support it is to volunteer. Then I know I'm going to be there every month. You know, I'm, not yep. gonna, I'm not gonna be home saying, do I want to go? You have to go. So I volunteered to, you know, set up tables and chairs and then ended up being the sound man and then ended up booking the shows for several years. Oh, cool. So that was fun. Yeah, who did you bring through? Well, I would try to, what, what was kind of fun for me is there wasn't really a board, so I kind of got to, uh, there wasn't a board that agreed on who to bring in, so I kind of to do my own yeah. thing. <laughs> but I, I always felt an obligation to, to keep every season diverse. Mm-hmm. So in the nine shows, I would make sure that we touched on something that was blues, something, something that was, uh, we'd make sure this was singer-songwriter. That was easy because that was kind of what a coffee house would be. Yeah. Um, Touched on something. I, I would try to be diverse and make sure it wasn't just a bunch of bunch of guys. You know, make sure we're getting you know male and female artists. Make sure we're getting some touring people, but also give room for local people too. Yeah. So I would try to I would try to fill all those pegs. You know. Yeah. And I would try to branch out, um, do something, and not only be just someone with a guitar. We got uh, we got the Chili Brothers one time. To do like a Mardi Gras thing, you know, yep. that was Joe Potenza and, and uh, Tony Medeiros, that band. And we'd bring in, uh, I brought a, a band that played medieval music one time. There was oh, a guy man. in Foster who played recorder. 
yeah. in like a medieval band. We booked that one time. Um, you know, to try to offer different things to, the, to people. Yeah. Um, and then I get to fill in my own passion as a bluegrass uh, flat picking guitarist. I got to, uh, I said, well, if, if I wanted, if I could see a flat picking guitarist that's still touring right now, who would it be? And uh, Brian Sutton and David Greer were the two names that came to the top. Yeah. And uh, both of them responded. Uh, but David Greer was the one I ended up being able to book. Cool. And that was great. Yeah. And uh, David, uh, I learned, didn't have an agent, did his own booking. Mm-hmm. So I booked him the one year, and he came in, and we got a pretty good turnout, which is pretty good for someone who doesn't sing, just sits there and plays. If you can sit and just play instrumental acoustic guitar, for a couple of hours and have people wanting for more, you have to be good. You're pretty good. Yeah. yeah. He's that good. <laughs> yeah. And I think I brought him back twice more. And mm-hmm. not because I chased him, but he'd call me. He liked the experience yeah. of doing Yeah. I'd be at work. I'd be at my day job and he'd be in the middle of some stress ball and pick up the phone, not knowing who's on the other end and say, Hey, Paul. This is David Greer. And it would just slow down your whole world. <laughs> and, you know, I'd say, Oh, that's cool. David Greer called me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, we booked him a couple, uh, I think three times all together. Yeah. So by having the peep toad, we had that out there in Foster, so that was nice. But, you know, in the meantime, you know, the Blackstone River Theater, one of the best listening rooms you're going to find, you know, that came around. Um, Narrows opened, you know, and there's, yeah. I know some of those musicians are way too big for any peep toad coffee house, but there's just more and more venues that have just come about. Yeah. Um, and it's just a lot more outlets for music. And at the same time, the model for that kind of singer, songwriter, folky coffee house, it's kind of a tougher, I think this audience kind of got older and, and it wasn't quite as easy to tap into a younger audience, mm-hmm. you know. Um, one, one example I had at the time, we had this little consortium of coffee houses. We were getting together and meeting, mm-hmm. kind of just to, to, to discuss that, you know. Yeah. <clears throat> With me, be Russell from uh, Blackstone River, and Russell Cassetti. Yeah, yeah and uh, maybe Tom Perota, I think, from uh, Common Fence. And we talk about, you know, our existence. You know, how do we keep this coffee house yeah. thing going? But around that time is when I got hooked up with Mark Lambert and the Sharks Come Cruising. Yeah. And play some accordion with them. And that was a whole lot of fun. That's the first time I met you. Yeah. Was in that era. But one thing that ties that into, uh, the struggle for the coffee houses is Stone Soup was right here in downtown Pawtucket. The Sharks were rehearsing right on Hull Street, right at Mark's house, not too far from downtown Pawtucket. Yeah. And it was a bunch of like around 30 ish kind of guys around 30 years old. And when I talked about Stone Soup Coffee House, they hadn't even heard of Stone Soup Coffee House, mm-hmm. which is nothing against Stone Soup Coffee House, but it spoke to what we as coffee house promoters which were, were struggling with yeah. is getting the word out. You know, if I had said to those guys, if I had told them about Stone Soup and they had said, yeah, yeah, but that's not really our thing. But that wasn't it. They didn't even know it existed. Yeah. You know? So there was a struggle. And that's what we used to talk about when we got together in these little meetings is how do we reach you know, this other audience. Mm-hmm. It's not that easy. You know, it's not yeah. that easy to spread the word. Yeah. Um, maybe with Facebook now, now, maybe it's a little bit easier. But at the yeah. time, you had to rely on the Providence Journal. Yeah. And I'm sure you've at one point tried to get promotion in the Providence Journal. <laughs> and, you know, either you get it or you don't. And yeah. for the peep toad, if you're going to want someone's gig, if you didn't get a good enough listing where people saw it, 
you had your own network of people and we would, I would try to spread the word every place I could, but yeah. you can't have enough publicity. Yeah. Josette closed her doors in 1989. War stories had all faded with the passing of good times. Never covered in my textbook such lessons in history. The part of war that cripples fondest memories. The fondest memories. Yeah, you mentioned that you've written some songs. Um, you've written my wedding song. Um, cool. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like, have you always wanted to write your own music, or was it just something that you've been playing other people's yeah, music no. for so long? Or? Yeah, you know, I remember I remember seeing a going to a workshop, a songwriting workshop one time with a songwriter called you you Moffat. If you look up his name, he's got some pretty big songs to his credit. <clears throat> and I just remember him saying, "Everybody's got one song in them." Mm-hmm. Everybody's got at least one song in them, you know. I'm not sure if that was what my motivation was, but uh, I, I I didn't like put a lot of effort into it. I wasn't like walking around with notebooks, but you know, yeah. every once in a while I would have an idea and I scribble it down, you know. And so there were probably some crude initial songs, but at the time that I was even thinking about doing that, it was a time when I was doing the Friday night you know jams up on Durfee Hill. So anything I wrote wasn't so that I could sit down with my guitar and play it in a coffee house. It was going to have to be able to have a bluegrassy kind of More feel to it. It was going to have to be something I could take on a Friday night and, and yeah. be part of the jam. Yeah. Yeah. Because if it wasn't for that, then it, yeah, I didn't yeah, you're writing for, it. for all these other people to be part of it. Yeah. You know? yeah. And so, you know, that song you mentioned that, that you and Jocelyn used for your wedding, Morning Light, that one just kind of came on its own. Mm-hmm. I didn't really work too hard on that. I just remember driving to work out of Forster one day and, you know, cresting the hill on Route 6 in Situate and the morning light okay. in front. I don't know. The, 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 the words and the melody started to come to me. Yeah. And just from continuing it, keeping it in my head at work and taking a walk at lunch and continuing to think of it, by the end of the day, I had a I had a song. Yeah. I hadn't played it on an instrument, so I didn't know what the chords were or what the key was, but I had the song stuck in my head. Yeah. Things came home and kind of put it together. So that one that one kind of worked out on its own. You know, but it wasn't anything I just I didn't I never really just kept at it to like become a songwriter. Yeah. Um what would you say is your greatest musical accomplishment? As far as personal gigs, you know, some of those, some of the sideman gigs have just been the best, you know, and some of those dance opportunities just because they're so unique. Mm-hmm. But, 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 but as far as really accomplishing, feeling like you accomplished something, the, the jam classes and, and getting people, getting people to play mm-hmm. together, um, and then seeing them out there at the jams or seeing them as bands, you know, this, this, uh, you know, the Ocean State Ramblers, you know, yeah. that, uh, play around at the farmer's markets and some bluegrass quartet. Three of those people, you know, started in this jam class in my house. Yeah. Know, and, and met each other there and 
I mean, that is the people, like I said, that came with no intention to sing mm-hmm. and now sing and learn songs all the time because there's something wrong with our culture that we're so shy about singing. Yeah. And I was that guy. Yeah. I was that guy so I can appreciate it. But I mean, you know, think about the cultures around the world. Yeah. That, you know, if you went to some of those cultures where music is that part of your life and you, and you said with your voice, I can't sing, that wouldn't make sense to them. <laughs> you, you, sounds are coming out of your mouth. So yeah. therefore you can sing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it makes no sense, but that's how we are. Yeah. Um, or too many of us are. Some yeah, of us that, are. That most of us are. Fear will stop us from doing it. You know, so. Yeah. But, but there's enough of those people that have come out of this class that, that are still out there singing. Mm-hmm. That's that's the biggest accomplishment I think, because because I think that's uh, if you can give someone that, I, I think that's a big gift. Well, thanks so much, Paul. I no appreciate it. Can you see the morning light burning through the darkness to melt away the night and wake up to a brand new day? Promise held tomorrow or to chase the past away. Well, I know you've had some bad times, you know I've had them too. But I know I hit the big time the day that I met you. And I can see the morning light. It's burning bright inside your eyes. Well, look now, can you see the moon? Hanging low and heavy on this autumn afternoon And what a way to end the day With the smell of colored leaves as we walk along the way Well, you were just a dream that I thought I'd never feel But now your hand's in mine and I know that it's for real And baby, I can see the moonlight It's glowing from behind your eyes